This episode of Armchair Explorer is brought to you by the 2024 Nissan Pathfinder. With seven drive modes, the Pathfinder's available intelligent 4x4 is built for even the most epic journeys. And epic journeys is what we're all about. Learn more at NissanUSA.com. Hey guys, welcome to the Armchair Explorer, where the world's greatest adventurers tell their best story from the road. My name's Aaron Miller, I'm a travel writer, and this episode we are tackling the toughest mountain bike race on the planet. It's called the Silk Road Mountain Race. It's 1,200 miles over the mountains of Kyrgyzstan, and the woman who we're racing with is not only an incredible athlete, she also has an incredible personal story, which I know you're going to love and be inspired by. Are you ready? Yeah, me too. Let's go. So taking us on this journey is Kat Jaffe. She's a bike packer, an explorer, and an extreme endurance athlete. She's also an incredible writer and podcast producer, and you can check out her latest work, Guardians of the River, which is an eight-part podcast series made in collaboration with National Geographic about the Okavanga Delta Wilderness Project. Just search it up anywhere you get your shows, and I'll link to it on the episode page of the website too. It is a masterpiece and I don't use that word lightly or often not only is it an incredible story it's powerful it's gripping it's important but the sound design the atmosphere and music of it which was all recorded on location in Africa is literally among the best I've ever heard you can also connect with her directly on Instagram at naturevert which I'm taking is kind of not an introvert or an outrovert but a naturevert and I'm totally stealing that by the way I love it You can also find more about her and her podcast production studio, which actually is based in Denver near me. I love these guys. And you can head over to houseofpod.com to find out more about what they do, more of their shows and all that good stuff. Finally, as always, just a quick request to you guys to say, if you are enjoying the show, please help by spreading the word. It really is the best thing you can do. Follow and subscribe, leave that glowing five-star review, or simply tell a friend, a fellow explorer, or someone that needs an escape. It really does make a huge difference. So thank you for whatever you can do. The social media is at Armchair Explorer Podcast across Instagram and Facebook. The website is armchair-explorer.com where you can find background information on each episode, book trips inspired by the show, and sign up for the newsletter. Now, I have been quite far behind in sending these out, but I'm kicking that back off with this episode and it will feature lots of cool stuff from this story, from the other stories, some of my personal reflection on it, and lots of stuff that you can't get from the show or the website, including my tips for some of the best travel podcasts to listen to out there. But don't worry about that right now, because we are about to head out to the absolutely beautiful high mountains and remote valleys of Kyrgyzstan, where nomadic families still live as they have for centuries. And once a year, a group of absolutely insane extreme cyclists gather here to take part in the toughest mountain bike race in the world. But first... Let's hear how Kat got into this crazy stuff in the first place. I got into the notion of ultra long distance bikepacking when I was living on the border of Turkey and Iran, running Balyulu, which was a honey tasting trekking company. I was working as a Nat Geo Young Explorer documenting traditional beekeeping routes, and I had 
magically because it's more affordable there than most places. I had a five bedroom house. And so I listed it on Couchsurfing. And basically anyone who was trying to bike across the world going through Turkey somehow ended up at my house. I was kind of the gateway. I mean, people would come and stay with me for months because they'd been bitten by a dog and had to get medical treatment or they wanted to drop their stuff and go over to Iran and then they didn't come back, you know? And it was like, what are you doing in Iran, Alex? You find out they were in prison for 30 days. You know, it's just like you would get these stories of people who were trying to do all of these things that existed around me, but I was either too nervous to do or too smart to do. And so I was treating all these wounded soldiers coming in from the trials of being out there. But, you know, they all had just the sun crust on their face of the the way that, you know, being outside all day, every day just bakes you. And their calves were ripped and they smelled actually good. There's a certain smell of people who are just out there every day, you know, experiencing the world in that way because there's no protection. You're not in a car. Oftentimes they're not even in a tent because they're traveling so light. So they have a bivy and it's like they are literally wearing the world on themselves. There's a special smell of that that I appreciate, admire and want to have. We all know that smell, don't we? The smell of the outdoors, the smell of adventure on your skin, the promise of something different, something bold and risky and outside the boundaries of normal life. And it lured her in. But she didn't just want to go anywhere. She was living in Turkey, working with these traditional beekeepers, which is another passion of hers. And it was a place she knew well. She would travel all around Turkey regularly with her dad as a child from the age of nine. And it was a special place to her. And it's a special place to all of us. Turkey is on the crossroads of Europe and Asia. And because of that, it has a very unique culture. It was the center of some of the greatest and most influential empires in the history of the world. Art and culture flourished there for thousands of years, as it still does. And because of its location, it was also a hub, a central cog in one of the most important trade routes of all time, the Silk Road. An idea began forming in her mind, fueled by all these sweet-smelling adventurers that would pass through her door, these wounded warriors she would care for and hear their stories and dream of faraway places. She decided that she wanted to go on an adventure herself. She decided that more than anything, she wanted to ride the Silk Road. I was always so enamored with the idea of human-powered travel, of this idea that Long before, you know, we had cars and trains and boats and planes and automobiles and all of these things, people had this deep desire to connect with one another by foot, to travel the lengths of the world, to meet each other. And all we had was our bodies as these long distance machines. You know, we weren't necessarily fast, but we could go far and we could go forever. And that was the genesis of Some of our greatest inventions and our ideas and our philosophy, I mean, Buddhism traveled through the Silk Road. Islam traveled through the Silk Road. Christianity traveled through the Silk Road. There was this peaceful exchange of ideas. And so I actually centered my studies on that in college. And I moved temporarily for about six months to northern India and did my thesis on the reopening of a trade route, an old Silk Road trade route between Tibet and India called Natula Pass. And so I was interested whether ideas would still move through trade the way it once had, even though we don't sit around campfires with yaks. 
And so I went up and lived with traders for just one week, but it was a big week. And I just documented all of their stories of how they used to sit around the campfire and sell goods and talk about ideas. And then years and years later, I found myself like a boomerang coming back to Eastern Turkey, living on the gateway of the Silk Road. It's like I'm as obsessed with human-based travel as I am with the Silk Road. And it's hard to separate them in my mind because it's just like when we look at any bikepacking now, to me, I think its origins are with that road. It's this idea that you carry everything with you. You go really long distances. You meet with people who are super different than you and, and you sit around and you shoot the shit like you can't separate them. So she knew what she wanted to do. She wanted to bike pack the Silk Road to experience firsthand this incredible trade route that had spread some of the greatest ideas in history and that had fascinated her for so long. And she wanted to do it on her own steam with nothing but her legs and lungs and determination to power her. But the thing about Kat is she's also pretty extreme and she likes racing. She's done numerous long-distance races since the idea first sparked in her imagination those many years ago, including something called Everesting, which basically means cycling the equivalent height of Mount Everest, some 29,000 feet in elevation gain, in a single day, up and down. And she did it in perhaps the hardest way possible, riding the incredibly steep high-altitude Trail Ridge Road in Rocky Mountain National Park, the highest continuously paved road in America, which goes up above 12,000 feet. So she's not shy of a challenge, and she knew the perfect one for her, the ultimate race, the hardest bike race on the planet, the Silk Road Mountain Race, which traverses Kyrgyzstan's high mountains over 14 days of ridiculously tough, self-supported, non-stop riding. But Kat's also an artist. She's creative. She's a writer and podcast producer. She cares deeply about sharing important environmental and social stories from around the world. And just as she was about to embark upon this crazy race, the adventure she'd been dreaming about her whole life, another dream out of the blue suddenly landed in her lap. It was the dream job. It was a huge job. It was the opportunity of a lifetime to work with National Geographic to make a podcast series about one of the biggest and most important environmental research projects in the world. The project is called the National Geographic Okavango Wilderness Project, and it's like the crown jewel of National Geographic Society's explorer portfolio. You've got this incredibly, quote-unquote, pristine wilderness, the Okavango Delta which is an endohoric delta. Endohoric meaning doesn't reach any ocean or sea. So it's all inside Southern African subcontinent, intercepting Angola, Namibia, Botswana, with side rivers that are kind of branching out into Zambia, Zimbabwe, even going as far as Mozambique, providing all of this fresh water for all of these elephants and all of these lions and all of these hippos. And then you have a really rich, rich indigenous community. And then it all starts in Angola, which is the most heavily mined place on the planet. So it's an area that people haven't been able to access for 40 years. And then all of a sudden, this project makes it in. And as Angola is starting to open up, follows the whole water system with traditional boats, with people from all the different countries, scientists, biologists, and indigenous people to understand the path of the water and get a better sense of 
all these mysteries around that water system. So it's just a massive, massive project, and it's been going for a while. And so I'm sitting in this entourage of land cruisers for 40 days, driving the equivalent of the length of Africa five times, vertically, up and down, up and down, up and down. And it was just, you know, especially for someone who's trying to train for the Silk Road Mountain Race and being in the most heavily mined region on the planet, I can't go anywhere. So it took a lot of creativity and perseverance (laughs) to be able to push through and get access and trust from local communities to participate, host, be in, be part of the podcast outside of the respective expeditions. So, you know, I spent four months out there. Sometimes I was hitchhiking because I didn't have a car and I was outside the formal program and just trying to get the stories I would get. And in different instances, when you're kind of hitchhiking across the borders of like Zimbabwe, Zambia and Botswana, the car quality is not always great. So like multiple times the wheels would go flying off or we're like at top speed and the car is kind of wobbling and shaking as it like careens to a stop as sparks are flying off the hub. And I'm just like, I'm going to die now. I'm going to die now. I'm going to die now. Like at one point I did rent a car and I was driving through the Chobe National Park area and I got a flat. And of course, as I'm out fixing the flat, you know, some tour operator stops by and goes, you know, there's a lion right there, right? You're out here by yourself outside of your car, just fixing this flat tire. So there are many instances where it's like, You know, the things that everybody fears for you when you go to any of these countries were like live and well, but that's not actually what risked my life. As the trip went on, painstakingly piecing together this impossible story in really difficult conditions, she started to feel that something wasn't right. She felt herself getting weaker. She was tired all the time. She started having pains in her body. She couldn't eat. But the story was so important, not just to her, but to the project, to the local people who she was recording and giving voice to. National Geographic were relying on her. It was a huge opportunity that she didn't want to blow. And she was on her own with no one to help her. So she pushed through the pain and sickness and worked 24-7 to get what she needed in order to piece this story together when she got back home. But by the time she got back home, her health had declined so badly that she could barely walk. She got off the plane and collapsed into her mother's arms in tears. She knew something was seriously wrong. And I went to urgent care and they said I had altitude sickness. And I was like, let me tell you what I do not have. Africa has elevation, especially the Angolan highlands where I was. Like, I do not have altitude sickness. So, you know, I had to go back to the ER many more times over two months period. And being misdiagnosed, having surgeries, going to so many specialists, I learned that I had malaria, dengue fever, and ovarian cancer. And that in some of my surgeries, because people didn't believe that it was possible that a woman who's in her early 30s and is presenting as if I just have basically these balls of blood, that they would be cancerous, didn't even check the pathology. And so they actually proceeded to spread my cancer all around my stomach which meant that we had to treat it even though it was a very early stage, slow-growing, like non-aggressive cancer. We had to treat it like it was stage four, and I had the highest kind of dosage that is permitted for a cancer patient of my age and build, which is pretty high, so I still actually can't feel half of both my hands. And as a result of that, I've been really outspoken. Like, I just am like, hey, my name's Kat. I had cancer. How are you? Which is not a great way to meet people and has actually 
I have learned kind of opened me up for a lot of like unsolicited advice that people love to give. And I think that's also one of the reasons why I loved bikepacking, because all of a sudden I had this amazing excuse to not see people or talk to people anymore. This episode of Armchair Explorer is presented by the 2024 Nissan Pathfinder. From muddy jungle paths and snowy trails to rolling sand dunes, the 2024 Nissan Pathfinder has the capability to take you to some of the most epic destinations on Earth. And Pathfinder, that's a pretty cool name, isn't it? Because that's also what this show is all about. Exploring, getting off trail, having adventures, finding your own path and living life to the fullest. Sound like you? Yep, sounds like me too. Which is why I'm so excited to partner with Nissan. The 2024 Nissan Pathfinder has seven drive modes, available intelligent 4x4. It's got the best towing capacity in its class, up to 6,000 pounds. So go ahead and bring all that gear with you and lots more. The 2024 Nissan Pathfinder, a vehicle built for adventures everywhere. So thanks again to Nissan for sponsoring this episode and for the reminder to chase bigger, better, more exciting adventures and enjoy the ride along the way. Learn more at NissanUSA.com. She came back from an insanely difficult four months with dengue fever, malaria and ovarian cancer and she still didn't give up her dream of riding the Silk Road. She still got on her bike. Like I say, pretty extreme. She would write all week, untangling hundreds of hours of audio and a ridiculously complex and sensitive story into something beautiful and meaningful and important. And then she trained every weekend. She just jumped on her bike and pedaled into the mountains and kept pedaling and didn't stop for hundreds of miles all day, each day and through the night. Most people, by the way, that are having chemotherapy and stage four cancer treatment can't get out of bed. And she was riding harder and further than most of us in perfect health could even dream about doing. And what's even more impressive is that she received her diagnosis of cancer the day the country went into lockdown. No one could come with her to treatment. She was high risk, so she couldn't see anyone. She had to do all of this on her own. All she had as solace, as escape, as a way to reset all the fears and stress and physical hardship she was going through was her bike and the open road before her. It was incredibly tough, but so is she. And she would need that toughness, that fierce determination, because the Silk Road mountain race is the hardest mountain bike race in the world. And she was not going to let anything stand in the way of her dream. The things that make this supposedly the hardest race in the world is actually not the terrain. Like very often I'd find myself being like, this is so straightforward. This such this terrain is so easy. But then you multiply that one bit. This is, you know, not that hard of a climb or this is not that bad of a washboard road or this isn't that rocky of a descent or this isn't that annoying of a like steep meadow at 12,000 feet that you have to walk your bike. But you just compound those things over 14 days and 1,200 miles. And all of a sudden, the terrain is really hard. So it's the fact that in order to complete the race, you really have to do a century day every single day back to back with a fully packed bike. And you're talking about 14 days. And then it's the climate. So you're going from like scalding hot desert to just blizzard mountain pass. 
and then the route itself doesn't follow any trail, any set course. They change it every single year. And there were times where I like almost threw my bike because I was just like, I can't find the route. And it's the middle of the night you're doing it. And there's dogs that are attacking you. And then there's always people nearby on horses. And then there's little children at every point of this course. And sometimes they're throwing flowers and giving you apples. And other times they're throwing rocks and holding like strips of rope across the road. And then as a biker comes up, they hold up the rope and then they tie you up and then tie you to a tree. And then you have to cut yourself open with a knife. Wait, what just happened there? We just went from people throwing flowers and what seemed like this beautiful communion of cultures to being taken hostage by child terrorists and having to cut yourself free with a knife. This isn't just the hardest bike race in the world. It's also surely the most surreal. So there's that element that you are just in a really like remote, dynamic living place for people where they don't see very often a hundred super weirdly dressed, bonk smelling, trashy international cyclists all roaring through who say they can't stop. They're self-supported. They got to keep going. And everybody's like, oh, the winner gets a million dollars. You know, like they all have these rumors. They're like, yeah, they're doing it because they'll become the new elected leader of this small country if they win. And it's like they'll ask you eventually, like they all want to know. And you're like, no, I pay to do this. And they're like, you're, you're paying money. And you're like, yeah. And they're like, and what do you get if you win? And you're like, honor. Yeah. When you put it like that, it literally makes no sense at all. But then again, as we'll see, Good sense isn't exactly a common trait among the handful of riders that dare to compete in this race. To complete it, you need to cycle about 100 miles a day, every day, for two weeks straight, over a seemingly endless series of high-altitude mountain passes on rocky dirt, single and double-track paths with the worst weather in the world looming over every high peak. In total, they will climb over 115,000 feet, That's about four Mount Everests. And you have to do it all completely unsupported. You can't accept any help whatsoever from anyone. No shelter, no food, no water. You need to carry everything yourself, camping out in the wild or just riding through the night. And you need to do it quickly too. The race is split up into three checkpoints and you only have a certain amount of time to reach each one. If you fail to reach your next checkpoint before the allotted time, your race is done. You've scratched But in order to reach those checkpoints, you've got to ride 16, 18, maybe even more hours a day on heavy bikes, and you need to follow a very specific course mapped out on your GPS. If you deviate from that course, which is often very difficult to follow and over barely recognizable roads, if any at all, if you deviate from that one little bit, you're out. Only the toughest riders in the world even attempt it, and of those that do it, only a fraction make it to the end. But exactly one year to the day after getting her cancer diagnosis, Kat found herself on the start line of the toughest mountain bike race in the world. The adventure was about to begin. It took a lot just to even get to Kyrgyzstan. It was hard to get there, hard to come back. But something very funny about Kyrgyzstan, everything, I would say, writ large, is a little off. Like, it's not exactly the way you'd expect. And that starts with when you land. So all the flights in Kyrgyzstan take off and land 1 a.m. and 4 a.m. So the early hours of the morning is when that airport is active. You fly in just the middle of the night and fly out the middle of the night, and this place is active. Bishkek Airport is the only airport that is popping at 2 a.m. 
So, you know, you come in and it's a party at the airport. And then being in Bishkek is very cool. It's a super modern, posh, fun, hopping city. But the mountains are right there. It's like, it feels like a fake backdrop. It's just, it doesn't seem real in that country. I mean, it's 80% mountains. They are so high. And you're on the border of, you know, China and Tajikistan. And it was incredible. And starting the race was incredible. Largely because also, much like the airport, everything is a little off. So the race was supposed to start at 10 p.m. at night and didn't start until exactly 4.20 a.m. the next day. Because, like, of course, there was a big snowstorm on the past. We're talking about August. A big snowstorm on the past to the race. All the bikes got stranded in a tunnel. And then they had to, like, find a place to put, I don't know, 99 bikers in the middle of Talas, which is like a tiny village. And so all the bikers broke into a decommissioned Soviet hotel. It was under construction and hadn't been used for quite some time. And like I slept in a bathroom that was all plugged up and people kept coming in all night and I had to just like shoot up. Nobody has any of their stuff because like all of our bikes are packed ready to go but I did have my rain gear on so I'm in my rain gear on and I just like shoot up and be like the toilet is broken. (laughs) And then you know the race goes off and like the mayor is there at 4.20 a.m. with a microphone which is darling like we had all these politicians that would pop up at various points in the race and every time they're basically just re-summarizing like thank you for coming to my country and not dying here. (laughs) We all kind of like giggle and then proceed because it is it's just like We are an international disaster, but somehow making it through. The call to prayer is going. The sirens are going. The mayor is waving us off. Dogs are barking and chasing after you, like already trying to like chomp on a cyclist's calf. And like off the peloton goes, you know, basically into the middle of nowhere. And like, that's the beginning. And I was sure if I made it to the start line, I'd cry. I was like, if I make it there after everything and how much I've thought about this and cared about this and believed in this, Without a doubt, I'm just going to be sobbing and I'm not even going to be able to breathe because it's going to be so emotional. And it just wasn't. I was just happy. The first leg to Checkpoint One starts hard. From the small village of Talas in the northwest of the country, about 180 miles east of the capital, Bishkek, the racers rode 30 miles straight up to the summit of Tarek Pass at more than 10,000 feet high. Kat reached the pass as the sun was rising, a stiff wind blowing in her face as the land ahead and below her rolled out in lush green valleys and sharp peaks dusted in snow. From there she rode west, finding her pace as the days unfolded, traversing green meadows and small mountain villages through ever more remote valleys, the pack of racers spreading out over the vast empty terrain of the Kyrgyzstan wilderness until she was alone just riding, pushing hard through sweat-drenching heat in the lowlands and blistering cold and hail in the alpine passes. It was brutal, lonely, nothing but her breath and burning calves for company. But it was also unbelievably beautiful and exactly where she wanted to be. You're on the Silk Road, and so you see these caravanserais. There's not a ton left, but, you know, Tashrabat, which is like this old Buddhist monastery that became a caravanserai, which is like a word for people on the Silk Road who would come together and have a place to eat and sleep and rest and talk before they would carry on. You see these things from the 15th century and you're like, I'm on that road. I'm doing that thing. Not in the same way. They weren't on these expensive, super nice bikes. Definitely not. But you feel connected to it in the same way. Like I'm on my bike and I feel like 
close to it as I would maybe a horse. Because I'm just like, this is mine and we're doing this together. And I don't feel alone in that. But I also feel connected to this like huge heritage, like this big historical thing. You're just passing year after year after year. And they are all riding horses, like really riding horses. I saw what had to be a four-year-old ripping across these Central Asian steppes, just at mock speed, dust flying, galloping on this enormous horse, bareback as like yak spread on either side and like the sun set. And here I was just like, ee, 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 on my bike, like so far down the road. And they look at you and they're just like, my vehicle is so superior. Which it is, of course, and especially in the hands of the Kyrgyz nomads, for whom the horse is an essential part of their livelihood and culture. Babies learn to sit a saddle before they can walk, so actually, mark speed at four years old is no big deal for them. And the culture of these nomads is beautiful and has remained largely unchanged for centuries. In summer, shepherds come to the mountain pastures here to graze their flock, living in yurts and small family communities, hunting with eagles, reciting traditional epic poems or manas by the fireside at night. This is the wild heart of the Silk Road, and to see it here, relatively untouched since the days when traders from the east would cross these mountains too, exchanging goods and ideas and religion and politics and possibilities, to see it like this was a dream come true for Kat. It was the real, authentic Silk Road experience she'd been looking for. But being essentially cut off from the rest of the world has a few drawbacks too. There's no food. You have just these tiny convenience stores where the food could be five years expired, you know, and medicine. So like they recommend a first aid kit. And I was like, cool, I'll bring like three Band-Aids. And then I got out there and I was like, oh man, I need anti-diarrheals, anti-constipation, something to help me with pain because wow, my knees don't work anymore. So you have this like list of things you need and you go into these tiny stores and you look at them and you're like, okay, commence charades. And they literally will bring out this box of pills that are unlabeled. The only identified characteristic is their colors. So I basically would be like, yeah, I'll take 10 of your blue pills. So you're just taking medicine, but it's definitely not FDA approved. And then you're like, okay, now I'm going to ride 12 more hours. And all I have is like, a liter of Coca-Cola. And like, that's the race, you know? And it is so funny. Like, I am laughing all the time, grimacing, you know? But like, it's just, it's so joyful and ridiculous when you think about how much in life you actually take serious. Then you go out there and you do this like kind of absurd thing. Even in the middle of the race, you'll see a racer, you'll come through one of these towns and they only sell beer in like big liter containers. You know, 15% home-brewed. And so you're just kind of getting shit-faced with other riders and you're talking about what just happened and everybody's cracking up. And then at a certain point, you all get back on the bikes and we have this phrase that's just like, see you down the road because you don't know if you'll see anyone again because they may scratch or they may not. And you may scratch or you may have something wrong with your bike and they're going to pass you soon. So it's just like, you don't know. So you have these amazing moments of just like sheer laughter where you can't believe what you just experienced. And then you get to go and experience more. (laughs) And scratching in a race as absurd and absurdly hard as this is always a possibility. But she was doing great. After a slow start, those high altitude Colorado climbs she was doing as training started paying off. She started overtaking people on the ascents. And because she was a downhill mountain bike racer for many years, flying past them on the way down. 
She crossed the shores of the Toktogal Reservoir and then headed south to the small town of Kizil-Oi for more medical charades and homebrewed beer. She was making great time. She was feeling strong. And from having found herself in very last place at the top of the first pass, she raced through checkpoint one ahead of time in the upper echelons of the pack. And then suddenly, disaster struck. Around day three or day four, my knees just were awful, like so bad that I was like, I don't think I can ride my bike anymore. And so I just started walking, which is fine and doable. In fact, this is one of the reasons why I love the race. There's no bike in the title. It doesn't say the Silk Road Mountain Bike Race. It is a mountain race. You can run it with your bike next to you. You just have to finish with your bike. That is it. So I started walking and just hoping that my knees would feel better after day one, day two. And by the sixth day, I was just crying walking. Like, it was so bad. And I was walking about 60 to 70 miles, which is still like a good amount of distance to walk. But you cannot finish the race with two three, four, 60-mile days. It's like I was doing really strong mileage, like I was hitting, you know, 100 miles my first few days. And then, you know, seeing day five, day six, that I wasn't breaking, you know, 100 miles anymore, and I was going well below. It was just like, I'm not going to make it to checkpoint two. And that was really hard. And so I'm going to scratch. And, you know, it was interesting because I knew I was going to scratch. And on the seventh day when I woke up, I kind of sat up in my tent and I felt my knees and I was like, oh, what if they're better? I think they're better. And I got up to go pee and I just tripped over my tent, peed all over myself because I couldn't walk. It was so like Kyrgyz poetics because it's like I'm tripping over my tent. I'm peeing on myself. I can't walk. I'm super sad. I know this is the end. And then like two wolves run up the side of the mountain. And like I've never seen wolves in the wild. That was like so magical to me and that they were there and they were near me. And it was just like everything is awesome and everything sucks. And I'm so happy, but I'm also a mess and I have to change my pants now. It's just like that's kind of how it happened. And somehow... I only cried twice during the whole race, and one time was just about how beautiful it was. Like, there was a part of me that really struggled biking past all the yurts, biking past all the horse people who were like, come into my yurt and have tea. And I had to keep saying no, and that was really hard. And I cried about it because it's just sad. Like, you bike because you want to connect with people, and then you can't because you're in a race but you want to keep going because there's so much more to connect with. And the beauty of doing these races is you cover land in a way that if you were casually biking, you would never go do 1,200 miles in 14 days. Like, that's absurd. So you just get to see and experience so much. So you want to keep going. You want to keep racing. But you also really want to go with Miriam to her yurt and meet her family, you know. And so the nice thing about scratching was that I got to split my time 50-50. I spent 50% of my time racing and 50% of my time traveling through Kyrgyzstan. She didn't finish. And actually, the only thing she did wrong, the only mistake she made was that she switched shoes just before she left. And that made her change her riding style ever so slightly, which in effect negated a lot of the pre-race strengthening work she'd done. And without that, and through the extreme nature of the terrain she was riding through, her knees just blew out. There was no chance of continuing. But actually, although she desperately wanted to finish and she'd worked so hard to achieve that, it was never really about that. Because Kat was riding two races at once, the Silk Road and her road to recovery. And the two things were inseparable for her. 
Her bike, those long rides out into the high peaks of the San Juans all weekend long, gave her the escape to deal with the stress and raw fear that her cancer diagnosis brought. It gave her the strength to fight it. And at the same time, dealing with the cancer and chemotherapy and the impossible task of producing the Okavanda Delta story all at once gave her the determination, the resolve and inner belief. It gave her that quiet voice inside of you that you can't train for that says in those darkest moments, you can do this. You will be okay. One more step, one more day, one more turn of the wheels. That's the race that mattered. And that's the race she won the minute she stepped onto the start line. Plus, there was an upside to scratching because it meant she had time to see Kyrgyzstan itself, to be a traveler instead of just an extreme athlete and see it at her own pace. And what she found was a country that, as she said in the beginning, was a little off, a little strange perhaps, but in a really, really nice way. Because Kyrgyzstan takes hospitality to a whole new level. One of the nicest things about it is, like, you only see local culture and history. Like, the race is an anomaly in that there are so many international and foreign people there. And I never saw another tourist, ever, the whole time. It's just one of those kind of bands of the earth that still is so authentically itself. To the point where, like, sometimes I'd get in a cab... And I'd be like, I'd like to go to this, like, pretty standard tourist site. And they'd be like, huh, okay, what's your deal? And I'd be like, oh, my name's Kat, why are you in Kyrgyzstan? Oh, I was doing this race. Oh, why are you in the race? Oh, I scratched because of my knees. Your knees? And they'd be like, great, (laughs) we're not going to go to the place you are paying me to take you. Instead, I'd like to take you to this interesting corner of this valley where I know of a beekeeper who collects all of his dead bees. And if we soak them in vodka and put them on your knees, you're going to be all better. So we're going to do that now. Like my whole day would be derailed. In other countries, they'd be like, I'm being kidnapped. But in Kyrgyzstan, I have this phrase where it's like, Kyrgyzstan, you can't always get what you want. But if you try sometimes, you'll get what someone else thinks you need. That's the beauty of it. And if you just sign up and you're like, yes, I would like to go on your adventure. I just ended up in like hot springs, cold springs, like my cab driver's house, which I any other place in the world, I'd be like, I'm terrified. But he was like, I really want to show you my record collection. Like, okay, here I go. And like, I have his mailing address and I'm going to send him a shirt of Led Zeppelin now. Like, there's just so much that is not smoothed out in Kyrgyzstan. And then if you're a traveler, that is like gold. I love that. I'd like to see this tourist site. I'd like to show you my record collection. Let's do that instead. I wish cabbies were like that all over the world. She had a great time. And there was something else waiting for her when she got back too, something unexpected and amazing that made the entire Okavanga Delta project not only worthwhile, but life-changing. She won the Tribeca Film Festival Best Podcast Award. And just to put that in perspective, winning that award is like winning an Oscar for Best Picture if you're a director. It's a huge accolade and achievement against a very strong field. And she did it, recovering from malaria, dengue fever, ovarian cancer, stage four chemotherapy, and while training for the hardest mountain bike race in the world. The author Napoleon Hill wrote, victory is always possible for the person who refuses to stop fighting. The Silk Road was finished. The Trebekah was won. Cat 
is still fighting. I'm a year out of treatment. And, you know, people expect cancer patients to come out of it like so grateful for everything. And I am. But I'm also pissed. There are things that don't work for me anymore that used to. Physically, mentally, like it's hard and I get sad. Also just with the amount of energy and pain and labor and time and loss, you're just trying to get back to where you were before. You know, and you'd expect with that much investment, somehow you come out with a superpower. And the superpower is like, you get to be exactly what you were before. And that is a huge gift. And then you walk around and people who haven't had to go through this deep, dark experience with death, who have really beautiful lives, are still just complaining about nothing. And it's in your face all the time. The other thing is that I am constantly afraid I have cancer again because within the first two years, it's like you have 50% chance of it coming back up. And they've like, you know, seen little spots where they're like, we're going to keep an eye on that spot, you know, and I still really know nothing about how cancer works. Am I fully over it? No. Am I in remission? Not exactly. I'm healthy and fine. I'm still totally terrified of having cancer. And for whatever reason, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday of a week, by Thursday, I'm losing it. I'm like, oh my gosh, it's back. My stomach is cramping. I hurt. And so Saturday, 8 a.m., no matter what deadline I was on, no matter what was happening, I drop my stuff, I get on my bike, and I ride until 8 p.m. Sunday night. Just ride. And by 8 p.m. Sunday night, I was just back to being me. And my body didn't hurt anymore. And I wasn't afraid I was getting cancer. At the end of Kat's time in Kyrgyzstan, there's a moment she describes where she recklessly gets back on her bike and cycles up one last mountain pass before she left. She just couldn't resist it despite her knees. And at the top, knees aching, breath panting, she looks out across the view ahead of her, an open road stretching to an infinite horizon of mountain peaks and rolling green valleys. And she thinks, what if I just kept going? The road would take her onto Tajikistan and Kazakhstan and Mongolia and China, and it called to her those faraway places as it did those many years ago in Turkey. It called to her as it had as a small child, listening to tales of the Silk Road told by her father. What if I just kept going? But she didn't answer that question until she'd got back and felt that nagging fear and doubt again, that terrible year of waiting she still had ahead of her before she would get the news that she was clear, the cancer is gone and her life could begin again. She's healthy today, she's feeling great, she's insanely fit and strong, but she is waiting still and it's hard. But until that time is over, Kat knows exactly what she has to do. She knows where her solace and strength comes from now. They come from that road, from inside of her. And guess what? Kat signed up to ride the Silk Road mountain race again next year. And there's no doubt she'll finish this time. And no doubt she'll win her most important race of all too. Because victory is always possible for the person who refuses to stop fighting. For the person who stands up for just one more step. One more day, one more turn of the wheels. Thank you, Kat. Thank you for taking us on this incredible journey. You can connect with her on Instagram at at NatureVert. You can also find out more about her and her podcast production studio by going to houseofpod.com. 
Com. And last but not least, do not forget to check out her podcast, Guardians of the River. It is a masterpiece and you won't be disappointed. Thank you also to Mike Cumber, aka Sweet Chap, for his work sound editing this episode. He's an awesome musician and producer. His song Rummage opens every episode of this show. And you can find out more about him on Facebook, where he performs amazing cover tracks as well as his own material. Just search up at Sweet Chap, all one word. And if you want to check out some of his cool music videos, I think he makes some really creative, interesting stuff, then just head over to sweetchap.bandcamp.com. Or of course, you can just search him up on Spotify or wherever you get your music. Lizzie Goldsmith also worked on this production. So thank you to her. She's an awesome writer and podcast producer in her own right. And you can check out more of her work at lizziegoldsmith.com. Finally, and most importantly, thank you. If you enjoyed this episode, please tell a friend about it. Check out a few more, subscribe and follow the show, and be a part of this community. If you love the outdoors and adventure and the pure joy of exploring this amazing planet of ours, you're in the right place. Come and hang out. We're going to get on well. So keep exploring. Keep looking for those open roads, those challenges, those adventures, that wonder. Because the more we look for wonder in the world the more the wonder of the world becomes a part of who we are. Dare to be truly alive.